Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Today we are continuing with our series that we've been doing over the last several weeks called Learning to Love. And this is all about what it means to love one another well. And you have a vested interest in learning how to love one another well. And no matter where you are on the faith spectrum today, whether you believe in God or not, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, all of us have a vested interest in learning how to love well because the quality of relationships that we have in our lives in many ways determines the quality of our lives. And if we have good relationships, if we have healthy relationships, then that generally means that, that, that life is better, life is happier. If we have unhealthy relationships, if that's what's char- what characterizes the majority of the relationships we have in our lives, then you know, there's a lot more stress, a lot more anxiety, a lot more frustration and anger, all those kinds of things. So it's in our best interest to learn how to love well. That's part of our responsibility in having healthy relationships is learning how to love one another well. But secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's important for us to learn how to love well because Jesus said that love is the distinguishing mark of his disciples. He said that that people will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And so I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the measure of our faith, the measure of our love for Jesus, the measure of our spiritual maturity can be seen in how well we love one another. But... Loving one another is easier said than done. I think we all know this. And so over the last several weeks, we've been looking at some of the challenges that we face in learning how to love one another well. So we've been looking at you know, forgiveness and the challenge of forgiving people that hurt you. Forgiveness is vital for any healthy relationship. Uh, we've looked at what it means to uh, repent and apologize when you make a mistake. It's one of the most challenging things for us to do is to own and admit when we've made a mistake. But today we're going to talk about another challenging aspect of loving well, and that is resolving conflict. You excited about that? <laughs> Yay! We feel the tension go up already because I know for most of us, you say the word conflict and immediately you start to get anxious and immediately you start to get worried because it just conjures up all these memories and bad experiences that you've probably had in the past where conflict with other people hasn't gone well, which is why I want to talk about this today. Um, actually, if you can hold on, Masha, if you can hold on, we'll do that in just a minute. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> which is why I want to talk about this today. So I, uh, I, I really, well, actually, you know, now that I stopped you, you were actually totally right. So go ahead. If, is anybody, there's a handout under your seat. Um, uh, if you don't have one, could you just stick your hand up really quick? A few people. Because this is one of those topics where, where it's like you'll listen to the sermon and it'll be amazing, hopefully amazing, and you'll be thinking, oh, man, I really want to remember this. But then when you get around to it, it actually is, you know, when, when conflict actually happens, you forget everything that you've learned. So what we've done is we've created a simple handout that you can follow along. Thank you, Masha, for doing that. You're totally on it. I, it was my bad. So well done. Um, so uh, the, the point of this is that you just need to hold on to this, like file it away, stick it in your Bible, put it somewhere you can find it. So when conflict does happen, you have something you can refer back to that maybe jogs your memory a little bit so that you can do conflict well. Now, I know for most of us, like I said, we, we, we get nervous, we get anxious about conflict. In our culture, 
Um, different cultures are different, but I think in British culture and, and the culture I grew up in in America, we tend to be conflict avoidant, meaning we spend a lot of time trying to avoid conflict, to dance around the issues. We tend to go around conflict, not through conflict. Some cultures, you tend to plow right through them, but in this one, not so much. We don't want to acknowledge that conflict is there a lot of times. So some people, uh, most people, I think, are conflict avoidant, and some people are conflict indulgent. You know, they love conflict. They, they, a good row is fun for them. They, you know, they do conflict as a recreational activity. But whether you're conflict avoidant or you're conflict indulgent, the reality is, is that conflict is inevitable. It is inevitable. And conflict is a part of any relationship. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that relationship is unhealthy. In fact, I would say if you never have conflict in a relationship, if, if a married couple never has conflict ever, I would actually question the health of that relationship because it probably means that one of the parties is not, doesn't feel safe enough to air their, their emotions or to, to, to t say what uh, their desires are. They're holding back a little bit. On the other hand, if all you do is fight, that's probably not healthy either. There's, there's a balance to this. But what I think is in most relationships of any substance, there is going to be conflict at times. Times when there's miscommunications, misunderstandings, uh, different, differing, held, uh, uh, differing opinions that are strongly held. You know, all of those things are normal. It's inevitable. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is, is broken. And even in the church, there is conflict. Now, I have to confess that I naively thought, when I was growing up, I thought there shouldn't be conflict in the church. I thought, you know, we're all just, we're, we're part of the body of Christ. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're, you know, we're just, you know, we're one big happy family, right? That's what I thought. Now, that's actually wrong. <laughs> Jesus never said that the church wouldn't bicker. I mean, if you look at the New Testament, you see the church arguing and quarreling a lot. The disciples, they quarreled all the time. Jesus said that the church would be known by its love. And love, loving well, sometimes requires conflict. Loving well sometimes requires conflict. If you think about it, so many times that, you know, when something happens, when there's a breakdown, when there's tension in a relationship, what happens so often is we tend to hold back, like I said. But, but really, what love requires is to, to, to step into that, to heal the breach of trust that's occurred, to, to restore and reestablish the connection that has been broken. Love sometimes requires us to actually enter into conflict. Or maybe Lauren was saying to me that, uh, that she likes the word courageous conversation, which is another maybe a nicer way we don't like the word conflict. So love requires courageous conversations at, at times. Can we put it that way? And my desire, though, is that we would be able to do that well as a church. And that's why we're talking about this today. But if we're honest... Unless you come from an unusually healthy church, and there, there are some churches out there that do this well, uh, my experience having grown up in church is that church people don't do conflict very well. We just like to pretend that it doesn't exist, right? We like to kind of, like I said, we like to walk around conflict. We don't like to walk through conflict. We like to just pretend that, you know, uh, that everything's fine. We're just, you know, nothing bothers me. And as a result, 
we don't have the kind of genuine, authentic community that we can really trust, that we really feel safe in. Instead, we're all very guarded. We're very, very, not all just our church, but all the churches I've been a part of throughout my life, it seems like there's, there's sort of a hesitation to really be honest and real. And I think we can do better than that. So that's one of the reasons that we're talking about this today, because what if the church wasn't a place where there was this kind of pseudo-community where nobody can really be honest about how they're feeling? What if the church was a place where we did conflict well? So instead of being a place like I thought, oh, church is a place where we never do conflict, what if instead it wasn't a church isn't a place of no disagreements, no conflict, but a place where we can be honest, where we can be real, and where we can handle it well, and relationships survive, and they continue that's my, my dream for the church, that we would be a place that does this well. But in order to do conflict well, like we've been saying throughout this whole series, there's some things that we have to unlearn in order to be able to learn how to do things right. You know, most of us, you know, we've never had somebody formally teach us how to handle conflict. Most of what we've learned We've learned from your family or from the, the school playgrounds when we were kids. All of our strategies, we've all learned something about how to handle conflict, but the question is, are they effective? Do they work? And most of us have learned from our families things like, you know, maybe, maybe when, when there's conflict, you, you get louder and you slam doors, or, or maybe you get physically aggressive, or maybe you get passive aggressive. Or maybe when there's conflict and tension, you begin insulting and criticizing and demeaning the person you've got conflict with. And, and maybe if, if uh, maybe when there's tension, you, you might have learned to just leave the room, just kind of flee, run away. Or maybe you've learned to do, what you've learned to do is just pacify the person who's upset, that your job is to just do whatever it takes to make sure they're okay and they calm down. Or maybe you've learned to, like I said, pretend that conflict doesn't exist and that you shouldn't do anything to disrupt the status quo. Uh, in my family, uh, this is a kind of a, become a running joke in my family, but uh, for a long time, the strategy uh, that my mother employed when we were out in public and my brother and I were bickering or, you know, we weren't in a good mood is my mother would say to us, be pleasant with, with clenched teeth. And, you know, I have to say, every time she did that, I just experienced a massive heart transformation. I just was like, you know, I was upset. I was being kind of a jerk before, but now I just feel so happy. I just want to be pleasant. No, no, but my, my mom's strategy was just to kind of like warn us, hey, you're, you're getting close to the line and, and I'm getting pretty angry, but we're going to like pretend like nothing is going on wrong here. That was, that was kind of how I learned to handle conflict in some ways. And uh, actually, I have to say that probably some of my most embarrassing moments in life have been uh, because I've mishandled uh, conflict situations, mishandled those courageous conversations. I've had, I, I would say for me, my strategy is to avoid conflict at all costs until there's absolutely no way out and I feel backed into a corner and then look out because I'm going to get really angry. And I'm ashamed of some of the things that I have done in the past. In fact, I got so frustrated with that, I finally was like, you know, I've got to learn how to handle this differently. I've got to learn how to handle my fear of conflict differently. I've got to learn how to handle my anger differently. I began to study it and, and examine how I could do it differently. And the good news today is that there are ways that we can learn to do conflict well. And so I just want you to dream for a moment. What if conflict didn't seem like the end of the world for you? What if you had the confidence and the tools you need to approach uh, a conflict in a healthy way? 
and you have a reasonable, you know, it's always a two-way street. You, you know, it, the, it says in Romans to, as far as it is possible with you, be at peace with other people. So you can't totally control the outcomes, but you can go a long ways when you do things in a healthy way. You, it, it goes, I think, 75% of the way to making sure you have a, a healthy resolution. So what if you had those skills? I mean, how would it change your thoughts about conflict? You know, rather than spending all this energy trying to avoid it and just seething with resentment or pain deep down inside, what if you knew how to address it in such a way before it became such a big deal? Well, Jesus has a lot to say about this, as you might uh, imagine. If you look at the life of Jesus, you see that he regularly confronted people. He was not afraid to confront people. And, and what I always remember, you know, when Jesus is calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and vipers, which, you know, that's kind of a harsh thing to say, is that here is love in action. Jesus was love personified, and yet he was regularly willing to confront people, at times quite harshly, but that is what love required. And so if you look at Jesus' teachings, uh, he, he has different things to say about, um, about conflict, but I just want to focus on one particular passage this morning in which Jesus is he's, uh, he's describing how to handle sin in the church, but the principles that he gives in this passage, I think, can be applied to any conflict. So we're just going to look at this one verse, Matthew 18, verse 15. It says this, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. In other words, if there's a conflict, you should go to the person that hurt you or wounded you or sinned against you in some way in private and discuss the problem with the goal of reconciliation. That's what Jesus is after here. So I, I want to just slowly look at each part of this. And, and let it, look at, I want to look at four different principles that I think we can glean from this that we can take into our own situations where we might need to have a courageous conversation with someone. First of all, I think it starts with something that seems really obvious but is so hard for us to do, and that is to acknowledge the offense. Like I said, we have a hard time acknowledging that there's, especially in the church, have a hard time acknowledging that there's a problem. And I think we do this for a variety of reasons. You know, I think for some of us, we don't want to admit that something hurt or bothered us. I think sometimes we think we're too spiritual, too holy to be hurt or, or you know, to admit that we've been hurt or offended by something that happened. Uh, we don't want to rock the boat sometimes. I think we, we, we just fear what might happen if we disrupt the status quo. I think sometimes we're afraid of how the other person is going to respond. You know, what might happen? This could go bad. And I think sometimes we're afraid that we might mishandle it, that we might say the wrong thing, that we might, and that might be used against us. There's, there's all kinds of fears that come up, but we don't want to let fear control us. We don't want to let fear hold us back from having the kind of relationships that God wants us to have. So I think what we have to first do is acknowledge it. When something hits you, whether it's a big thing or a little thing, it's okay to admit, oh, that stung. You know, if, if, if Lauren is short with me, I mean, that would never happen. Lauren would never, ever do that. But let's just say she did. If she was short with me or rude to me or something in the morning and, and kind of stung a little bit, you know, it's okay for me to be like, ah, goodness, that, that stung. That's okay. If it's a big thing, it's okay to acknowledge 
even to yourself, wow, that really hurt. What happened? If you don't acknowledge it, you can't deal with it. If you won't admit something hurt, you can't deal with it. I mean, this is really straightforward. I mean, this is not acknowledging something is a, maybe a good short-term strategy, you know, maybe, and maybe sometimes it's necessary. Maybe it's not a time when you can uh, confront someone because you're in public or whatever, but, but not acknowledging it, not being willing to confront someone, ultimately it's a bad long-term strategy because either you store up all that hurt and pain and anxiety that you're feeling until it eventually kind of blows up, or it, you, you get cold, you get distant, and either way, the relationship could, is damaged and could possibly uh, be dissolved. But I want to say here that acknowledging the offense doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go and confront someone. There's actually, when you acknowledge that something's happened, you have a decision to make. You can either go and confront or you can make the choice to overlook. Proverbs 19.11 says this, it says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. In other words, Christians, followers of Jesus, we should be magnanimous. We should be willing to extend empathy and forgiveness and grace, and this is essential. I mean, if, if any of you are married, you, you know how often you, you need to choose to overlook the shortcomings of your spouse. This is necessary in friendships. This is necessary in any sphere of life. And if we confronted every little thing that kind of tweaked us or upset us, it would be totally exhausting. So there is a time to confront and there is a time to overlook. But how do you know when you should overlook something and how do you know when you should confront something? I use kind of two general rules of thumb. <laughs> if I, I, when, when something happens that's upset me, my first question is, is this going to matter in five years? Is this going to matter in two weeks? Is this going to matter in five years? So if somebody you know, cuts me off in traffic, is that really going to matter in five years? If, if someone's rude to me, uh, is that really going to matter in five years? It might, I, I suppose, but probably not. Most things aren't really going to matter in five years, and so if it's not, it's probably not worth confronting. But a second principle that I like to, to uh, go by is, if, is this person, or has what they've done significantly hindered my connection with them? Has it hindered, has it broken the trust, has it hindered my connection with them? If it has, then you should probably confront them. Or if it's just, but maybe it's just a minor thing. Maybe you, you, you realize, hey, that person is having a really bad day, but I know that's not them. I know there's things going on in their life that might be causing them to react that way. And so I can overlook that because this isn't who they really are. There are so many times when, we, when people just need us to extend grace, to extend empathy, to put ourselves in their shoes and say, you know what? I bet this isn't, this isn't how they really feel about me. I bet they just are having a, a hard day. But there are sometimes, if you know that something has been done that significantly damages your trust in them or your connection to them, when you do need to confront. But either way, you've got to acknowledge the offense first. Now, the question is, or, or is so that's part one. It's just acknowledging the offense. But part two is then taking the initiative. Jesus puts it this way. He says, you know, as we looked at that verse, do we have the slide there? If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Go privately. Jesus is saying, 
take the initiative. And what's interesting about this is he's saying if you're the one who's been hurt or offended, you take the initiative. And as we looked at last time, we, he talks about when you're the one that has done the offending and you're aware of it, then you also take the initiative. Jesus is saying that love goes. Love does. Love takes action. Love is not passive. Love, loving people well often requires us to go if we sense there's a breach in the relationship. And this is so hard for us because when we get hurt, when we get, when we get offended, the last thing we want to do is go to the person that's hurt us. We, we feel like they should come to us, like they did the thing. Why, why should I go to them? But Jesus is saying, no, no. As followers, my followers, take the initiative. Go to them. Go to them. Seek reconciliation. As I said earlier in this series, your offense is your responsibility. If you have been offended by someone, it is not their job to come to you. They might not even know you've offended them or that, that you've been offended. It is your job to go to them and point out the offense. I've seen this over and over again when people expect, to have, expect for the other person to read their mind and then they just kind of sit there with their arms crossed and they become more bitter, they become more angry, they become more hurt, and the, the rift in the relationship just grows until it can't really be reconciled. And this is something that I believe we need to do quickly. Don't let it linger. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. So Paul's point here is don't be passive. Don't allow too much water to uh, slip under the bridge. Instead, go. Take the initiative. If something has hurt you, something's offended you, you've got to take the initiative before too much time passes. And like I said, over and over again, I've seen people in the church over time, they, they've allowed those little things, minor offenses to become big things. And that's the thing I should have said as well about overlooking an offense. When we overlook an offense, it's not just about uh, we're gonna we're not gonna say anything, but actually we're gonna keep a note, like keep that keep a notebook of all the little things that they've done wrong. If we're gonna overlook an offense, we're gonna genuinely let it go. We're not gonna bring it up later. It's not gonna we're not gonna circle back around to it. It has to be a genuine forgiveness and a releasing. But so many of us, when, when, when relatively minor in, uh, situations come up, and yeah, they're genuinely hurtful, and we, we choose not to address it, what happens is that rift begins to grow. And what comes in is bitterness and resentment and anger, and that's the foothold that Paul's talking about there. That's, that's what the enemy likes to do. And, and suddenly, this relatively small thing becomes this big thing, and it becomes so much harder to deal with the offense. So Paul is saying, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Take action. Take the initiative. Now, some of us, we hold back because we're afraid, you know, as I've said, for all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons, I think, is we're afraid of not doing this well. I mean, that for sure is something I worry about. Like, oh, what if I say this wrong? Or what if I, what, I offend them? What if I, you know, uh, uh, don't know what to say? What if I stutter? What if I stammer? But, but the point here is not to get it perfect. Nobody is ever going to confront perfectly. Can I just say that? If somebody's confronting you, please don't expect it to be done perfectly. And don't make it about how they did it. Make it about what the issue is that they're bringing up. But if you're the one that needs to go and confront, you must be, uh, must give yourself grace to know this is not going to go perfectly. But the important thing, the main thing is that you go, that you take the initiative. 
And notice also there that Jesus says, go privately. Go privately. And that means that, that you choose a time and a place where you can be, have an honest conversation where, where other people aren't going to be listening in. You ever seen people having a row in public? It's just awkward for everybody, right? And it doesn't work either because in public, there's all this weird pressure on you and that, that's usually not going to lead to reconciliation. So instead, Jesus is saying, go in private. Go into a place where you can have an honest conversation. But let me clarify this by saying going in private does not mean going, it means going in person. It does not mean sending a text. It does not mean sending an email. It does not mean, you know, like, and, and that's so hard for us because it's so easy. Our phones are readily accessible to us, and it's just so easy to send that snarky text or to send that really cutting email so much easier than actually going and sitting down with that person, uh, sitting down with the other guy, the, the, uh, the other party in person. It's so much harder to do that. But whether I have, my observation is, whether I have been on the receiving end of those texts or emails, or whether I've been on the sending end, and I've done both, uh, it never helps the situation. Because people, they either, they come across far harsher behind a keyboard than they do in person, whether they intend to or not. I mean, if you look at social media or if you look at the comments section in the internet, uh, you will see people are far harsher, far nastier to each other behind a screen, behind a keyboard than they are in person. And even if they're not meaning to be, so much of our, of our communication comes in nonverbal communication, right? It's our, it's our hand gestures, which I seem to love. Got lots of hand gestures going on today. Hand gestures, facial expression, tone of voice, and what you don't see in a text or an email is all of those things. And so it's so easy for miscommunication to emerge. It's so easy for things to sound harsher than you mean for them to be. And if I'm honest, sending a text or sending an email rather than going in person, it's just cowardly. It's lazy. It's not valuing that relationship. It's saying, I value my own safety more than I value you. So confront in person. One more thing about going privately. I think Jesus means that we go to the person directly rather than going through a third party. What we love to do when we're hurt or offended is we love to talk to everybody but the person who's offended us, right? And we like to, to persuade them that what they did to us was wrong and that person deserves to be banished to Antarctica or something. You know, we like to build a case. We like for other people to empathize with us. And I, I get that. It's a very natural thing. But Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. That's gossip. That will damage their view of that person. So go directly to the person in private. Now, let me balance that by saying sometimes... If it's a really uh, explosive situation, maybe you're talking to somebody who's abusive, you might need a third party there to help mediate. Sometimes you might need to talk to somebody to help you figure out a plan for how you can be reconciled. I've talked with counselors at times with some particularly scary situations for me, but the goal of those conversations is never, I just want to vent all my emotion about this. It's to help me figure out a plan to be reconciled. So there are times when I think you can involve somebody else, but please don't do that with a, with a goal to tear the other person down behind their back. Do it with, hey, we've had this rift. Can you help me figure out how I can approach this person and mend that rift? Thirdly, resolving conflict means communicating the problem clearly. 
communicating the problem clearly. It says, if another, Jesus said, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Now, that might sound obvious, but that's actually really difficult for us. We have a hard time actually saying what the issue is when we actually confront somebody. Lauren uh, has a great story that it makes me laugh every time I think of it, and she's given me permission to share it with you this morning. But when she was at university, uh, she learned this lesson the hard way, the importance of actually being specific and clearly pointing out the offense, uh, because one day she was getting really frustrated with one of her flatmates. I guess they had like a, a, a chore chart for helping take care of the, all the, the cleaning in the, in the flat that she was living in, and everybody was responsible for their dishes, and she felt that one of her flatmates wasn't pulling her weight, and it, she was getting more and more frustrated about it. Until one day, she went to her flatmate's door, knocked on the door, flatmate answers, Lauren walks in and says, hey, I just want you to know I forgive you for all the things you do that make me mad. <laughs> and then walked out, shut the door, and was really proud of herself. Like, oh, that was good. That was a courageous conversation. I, I, of course, but deep down now, you got to know, Lauren is a peacemaker at heart. She's a nine on the Enneagram, meaning she's a peacemaker. She hates conflict. She, is, she has uh, been conflict avoidant her whole life. And for her, this was a huge step. And so she quickly was like, I want to get as far away from that conversation as possible and retreated to her room into her walk-in closet, which they have in America. And she, that's where she spent time with God. So she goes in there, shuts the door, and is like, I'm just going to spend time with God right now and just kind of recover from that awkward conversation. And, and was in the middle of doing whatever she was doing in her quiet time when she hears a knock on the door from her flatmate who, who courageously came in and said, uh, do you want to tell me spe any spe anything specifically I'm doing that's making you mad? And, and uh, Lauren realized, oh, I didn't really tell her <laughs> what the problem was. See, Lauren did the first two steps right. She acknowledged the problem. She chose to have that courageous conversation. She chose to, to step out and to uh, go to the person. She did it in priv privately, so she got all that right, but then she kind of stumbled when it came to actually pointing out what the problem was. See, I think what happens is we get in those moments, and right when clarity is needed, we tend to get fuzzy. We tend to try to soften the blow. We started saying things indirectly. Do you think you maybe could next time sort of do this, rather than saying, hey, what you did really hurt me? Instead, we, we, we try to like go around the edges. It's the last 10% that we often struggle to say, but that's the most important part. Being clear, being honest with what happened and the, the impact that it had on you is so important. So here's what I think it means to communicate clearly what the problem was. I think it means these four things. That you clearly state what you observed, what the, which by that I mean, you, you just say, hey, look, this is what I'm seeing happened. This is, and you want to do this in a way that's not blaming you always, you never, all those types of things. If you, if you say, make it I statements where, hey, this is what I observed, <laughs> and just state the, the problem in a non-blaming way. And then talk about what the consequences have been. You know, this is the impact that it had on me. And then maybe how it hurt you. In other words, what's the message that this thing has conveyed to you? And finally, ask for the change that you would like to see. So in other words, like, hey, this, th this thing happened. Here's what I've observed. This was its impact. 
here's what it communicated to me, and so next time, could we do it differently? And here's my thought about how we do it differently. So in Lauren's case, if we could, you know, go back and replay that situation and maybe help Lauren out with her, her uh, communication on that day, and she's far better at this now, by the way. This was when, you know, this was over 20 years ago this happened. So she's grown quite a bit, I must say. But if we were to help young Lauren out in this conversation and be a lot more clear, what I think she, maybe she needs to start out by doing is just coming in and saying, hey, um, I noticed that there's been a lot of dishes around the sink, and, and a lot of them, I think, are yours. I've also noticed that like some of the, the chores that, that we are all doing, you haven't been doing your part of it. And the problem with that is that, is that I have people over regularly, and so I'm having to clean up and tidy up our kitchen last minute. And, and often, I, I, I'm having to do it, um, and, and I'm having to do it quite a bit, and some of the other flatmates are having to do it quite a bit, and I'm just feeling more and more frustrated about that because you know, it seems like you don't really care uh, about the mess that you're leaving behind. It seems like you're not willing to follow through with what you agreed to do. And as a result, my trust for you is, is diminishing. <laughs> and I don't want that to happen. So would you mind doing the washing up when you, <laughs> whenever you uh, have dishes? Would you mind doing your job on the chore chart, whatever that is for that week, so that, uh, so that it doesn't just all stack up and then somebody else ends up doing it for you? And then waiting and listening and hearing the response and, and actually having a courageous conversation because it's not just about you just kind of coming in and dumping your stuff. It's also about listening and hearing what they have to say in response. I think that probably would have resulted in a better conversation for Lauren, at least initially. I imagine she got there in the end because her flatmate thankfully came and followed up with her. But that's the idea. You want to clearly communicate what's happened. Now, the fourth step, though, is maybe the most important, and that is to remember the goal. The goal of conflict, a courageous conversation, is reconciliation. Reconciliation is the goal. It's not to score points. It's not to humiliate the other person. It's not to inflict pain on them. It's not to get them to take the blame. It's not to uh, have a time to just air all your grievances against them. The point of the way that we resolve conflict is that we go to them seeking reconciliation, not vengeance. And that's hard for many of us. When you've been hurt, the natural thing we want to do is we talked about when we talked about forgiveness is to lash out in response. But that's not going to build connection. That's not going to build trust. Again, that verse, Jesus says, he, sa he says, if the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. That's the goal is to win that person back. And, and, and if you think about it, when there's a breakdown in a relationship, you've kind of lost that person. They become distant. The relationship has been fractured in some way. So being a follower of Jesus means that we go to them and we try to heal that loss of connection. We try to heal that broken trust. We try to uh, uh, address the problems that are causing pain in the relationship so that the relationship can be strong. It's prioritizing the relationship over the blame. Often we want somebody to take the blame. Who's right? Who's wrong? You're wrong. You're wrong here. You're wrong there. No, it's not about that. It's about restoring that connection. 
Jesus called us to be peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. Or blessed are, no, it's not the right one. But blessed are the peacemakers, um, for they shall be called sons of God, I believe is how it goes. As followers of Jesus, we can be ministers of reconciliation, peacemakers. But we can't be passive about it. We have to take the initiative to reach out to people when there's been a, a fracture in the relationship rather than just letting it drift. It's, it's far more powerful to resolve a relationship than dissolve a relationship. And so many times, whether I've been on the giving end of these conversations or whether I've been on the receiving end, when it is done well, when somebody is courageous enough to come to me and have that conversation, oftentimes that relationship is stronger than it was before. It builds trust rather than erodes trust. I can think of so many times when people have come to me and they've, they've said, hey, you're doing this. And listen, we all need these conversations from time to time. As I said it earlier, conflict is inevitable. And that means there's times that you are going to be on the receiving end of these conversations. And there's times when you're going to need to be on the giving end of these conversations. But it's normal. This is just a part of life. Doing this well is what matters. I want us as a church to be a people that, that doesn't have this sort of pseudo-community where we, we go around problems rather than through problems. I want us to be a church that, that doesn't just avoid conflict, that just tries to keep things safe, that, that just speaks in generalities and just tries to keep things pleasant. I want us to be a church where we can be honest, where we can be real. And you know what? It will be messy at times, but I would have honesty and messiness rather than than than. Uh, fake, pseudo-peaceful relationships, but there's no real community. There's no real trust. There's no real honesty. Deep down, we're walking around angry, walking around hurt, walking around fearful. That's not the kind of community that God created us to have. He wants the church to be a place of trust, a place of safety, a place of honesty, a place of accountability, and a place where we can become like Jesus together. So I want to challenge you. If there are people in your life that you struggle to relate to or that you, you need to have a conversation with, would you love them enough to step into that awkward place and have a courageous conversation with them? Would you care about that relationship enough to step into that place, even though it may not be totally smooth, even though you might make mistakes when you're sharing or when you're talking to them? Would you be willing to take that step of bold love? Because that's what loving well requires of us at times. I realize this doesn't sound like much fun. <laughs> but I promise, it's, it's going to come up for every single one of us. And if we can handle this well, conflict doesn't have to be the end of a relationship. Conflict can make your relationship better. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, this is an area we are just naturally so weak. And yet, throughout the Gospels, we see example after example of what healthy confrontation looks like. You showed us what it looks like, Lord. You showed us that, that love at times requires this. Lord, for so many, this is like a terrifying prospect. But Lord, we ask, or I ask God that you would help us not to hold back in fear. But I ask that we would go, Lord, that we would go to others, that we would take the initiative, that we would seek reconciliation. 
Father, forgive us when we have prioritized our own comfort, our own safety, our own um, uh, sense of self-protection over a relationship, and as a result, really hurt other people. Father, forgive us where we've held back, or forgive us, Lord, where we have lashed out because we've just not known how to handle conflict well. Lord, I pray that you would show us a new way, and that you would give us the courage, Lord, where there's broken relationships, whether it's with a a friend or somebody in the church or somebody at work or a flatmate or whatever, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to go, to seek reconciliation. And Lord, may we be a church that loves well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.